You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, before we get started with today's episode, I just want to mention that the second book in our series in the Bible for Normal People, Exodus for Normal People, is out now. So, Pete, why don't you give us a word about it? Yeah, this book is all about trying to get into the really difficult and challenging stuff of the book of Exodus, looking at it through ancient eyes and also through how scholars have dealt with some of these challenging parts. And it's it's, it's a book that I hope you like and I hope you love it. It was fun to write it, and I'm really excited about it. So go now to thebiblefornormalpeople.com, front slash Exodus. You can learn more. You can order the book from there, or you can go online uh, wherever you might order books and find it, Exodus for Normal People. Really excited to have this accessible commentary on the book of Exodus available for you now. Thebiblefornormalpeople.com, front slash Exodus. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. You're in for a treat today. We have a repeat guest, a rare and special honor for a few of our guests. It's Dr. James Kugel, Professor Emeritus from Bar-Ilan University, as well as Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, which is where Pete would have met Dr. James Kugel. And today we're going to be talking about shifting perspectives on God in the Bible. Yeah, this is an issue that's really, if you stop to think about it, this is pretty fundamental, like how God is portrayed in the Bible, and not just how, but like why. Why do people talk about God the way they do in the Bible, which is somewhat diverse, it's varied, it's not just one way. But then, you know, the, the, the larger question of why we think about God the way we do and how we sometimes have difficulty connecting with the way God is presented in the Bible. And, and you know, most people I've run into have a problem <laughs> with bringing those two things together. And, and what's really interesting, and we're going to let Google tell this the way he wants to tell it, but one of the things that really comes into this that, that, that um, makes it such a sort of a thick and rich discussion is that it's also how we look at ourselves that affects how we look at God, and sometimes it's hard to know the direction of influence, but maybe we don't have to worry about that too much, Jared. I appreciated the conversation because it allows for this evolution of who we are and how that changes how our perspective on God is, and that we see that in the Bible itself, which is something we keep coming back to, is that there is kind of nothing new under the sun, that in the same way, even personally, our views of God shift as we have different views of ourselves and new views of God, we see that in the Bible as well. So, I appreciated that perspective perspective in this conversation. All right, let's have this conversation with uh, Dr. James Kugel. We don't really espouse anymore this collective punishment. As Ezekiel says, and Jeremiah says, don't say that proverb anymore that the fathers ate unripe fruit and the teeth of the children are set on edge. In other words, the children are being punished for what the fathers did. At a certain point, we stop believing in what's called transgenerational or vicarious punishment. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Let's talk microdosing, as you'd expect from a Bible podcast. 
Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you know, microdose gummies are good for so many things like anxiety, workflow, sleeping, and stuff like that. I mean, Jared, we've had people in our lives that have benefited from this too, not just us. Yeah, I have a family member who regularly uses microdosing for more creative, like recreational time, a time they journal every night and it's sort of a way to unwind and do the journaling. And that's worked really well for them. Our yeah. producer. Our producer. It's made such a difference, folks. I can't even tell you that. So anyway, <laughs> and for me as well, uh, microdose gummies help me a lot with anxiety and sleep and just stopping that racing mind at night. And it helps tremendously. I get a good night's sleep. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you back again. Well, it's great to be back again. Yes. Um, well, it, Jim, we're talking about this great shift. And maybe one way of getting into it is let's just sort of take this in order. Like, what, what happened before this great shift? How how did the Bible sometimes talk about God? Well, I, I think for most people, we've developed a kind of reflex of, you know, I won't really take this stuff literally or, uh, you know, other uh, ways of reckoning with the material. But if you just look at much of the Bible, these people seem to be living in a different reality from ours. And um, eventually, uh, you know, it, uh, I came to focus on what scholars call the, the human sense of self, the idea that we carry around in our brains and, and the conception of us as, um, uh, as uh, human beings. It's not a universal phenomenon is what I'm trying to say. People um, in different places and in different periods have di very different ways of conceiving of themselves and consequently, they perceive things differently. I know this is going to sound like a bit of an apology for our now outdated ways, of, um, but that isn't the point at all. It's really that people uh, have, have these basic assumptions about what they're capable of doing, how they fit into the world, and uh, those assumptions are not universal. They change from place to place and from time to time. And clearly, uh, in earlier times in ancient Israel, people did perceive things differently. So, would can you maybe clarify that a little bit? In some ways, what I'm hearing you say is how a culture or society or, or people conceive of God, you also have to think about how they conceived of themselves, because there is this interrelationship, of course, uh, in, in the Protestant tradition, John Calvin makes this point in the, the first part of the, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, sort of how we view God depends in some ways on how we view ourselves, and how we view ourselves depends upon how we view God. So, there's a shift, is what I'm hearing you say, in the way people perceived themselves, maybe from the time when the earliest uh, traditions and parts of our Bible were written down and, and passed along, and how it is now. Could you talk about maybe what some of those things, and, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but maybe give people a sense of, you know, how is that different, or how would they have seen it back then that would have had led to a different view of God or perspective of God? Well, I guess it might be, you know, clearer if I just mentioned some of the differences. These really, when I, when I got interested in this subject, 
I, I wanted to know uh, what uh, people in other disciplines, other uh, branches of learning and universities know about our sense of self. And one thing that uh, everyone seems to agree on is that uh, um, it, it used to be that, uh, that people thought there was a, some sort of clearinghouse in the human brain through which uh, all information flows. It was the clearinghouse in the sense, not only that they got the information, but they, uh, there, there must be some part of the brain where all the, you know, sense inputs and memories and all the other things that uh, we seem to be perceiving are put together to make a picture. And Descartes, who was not exactly all that uh, recent, uh, uh, he supposed that the pineal gland was really the site of, uh, of where all the, this information came together and was synthesized into a picture. Um, it turns out he was wrong. Uh, that gland is mostly responsible for giving us melatonin and putting us to sleep at night. But the idea remained that there, there was some sort of central part of the brain that, that put everything together. And, and now I think most neuroscientists agree that that's an illusion. There isn't any one particular spot, that, nor is there one particular way of conceiving of ourselves. Each society, as, as I was saying, kind of makes it up as constructs itself that, that we then embrace because you know we're human beings and we're, we start off as kids and we're taught a whole way of understanding the world around us um so that in a way begs the question why you know why is it that um you know, people uh, stopped thinking about themselves and started thinking differently i'm i'm afraid i don't have a, an answer for why but i I think the Bible is full of evidence of this um, great shift taking place. Uh, at first, human beings used to think of themselves more in collective terms than as uh, individuals. Um, and now uh, we are very much uh, individuals. But, uh, you know, in the Bible, for example, we're told that uh, God will punish people for not only what whatever wrong they did, but or their whole family or uh, some other group of people with, uh, with whom they're associated. Uh, you may remember it says that even in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, uh, God will visit punishment on people who have uh, violated these commandments uh, up to three or four generations. So in other words, you know, your great-grandchildren can be completely innocent. They, whatever they did, they'll... Um, they may be uh, bearing the punishment of uh, some others. Right now, I think there are very few people. Uh, in fact, we have the biblical evidence of this uh, shift taking place. Uh, we don't really de uh, espouse anymore uh, this collective punishment. You know, as Ezekiel says and Jeremiah says, um, don't say that um, proverb anymore that the fathers uh, ate uh, unripe fruit and the teeth of the children are set on edge. In other words, uh, the children are being punished for what the fathers did. At a certain point, we stop believing in what's called transgenerational or vicarious punishment. 
but uh, that in turn reflects some big change in us. We uh, we started thinking of ourselves much more as individual uh, individual beings and much less as great amorphous bodies, your people or tribe or whatever it is. So um, would you say then that, I mean, this might be a chicken and egg kind of question, but it seems like how humans conceive of the sense of self, how they see themselves affects how we think of God. And, and is that sort of the order? Is that a causal link? I mean, maybe that's something we can't even ask, but it, it seems like, you know, to, to explain Ezekiel's um, non-transgenerational view of punishment vis-a-vis -vis the Decalogue, which clearly has it, it might not be enough to say, well, their views of God are changing. It might, we have to work into this. I think you're saying how they just understood what it means to be human. Yeah, I thought you were going to go in the other direction and say that once they began to have a different conception of God, they began to think differently about uh, their fellow humans. I don't think uh, we really have a chronology to uh, explain those things, but it is, you know, I guess a fairly undisputed fact that the depiction of um, the human being as an individual as opposed to part of a collective is pretty easy to find in the Bible. I mean, I mentioned the, you know, Decalogue, but there's, uh, I, I think that there are much more spine-chilling uh, illustrations of this. There's a fellow in the book of Joshua named Achan, and um, uh, he violates the provision of, of God. And when he, it's discovered that he has violated this provision, he's taken from the harem, uh, uh, from the material, that were, the goods that were supposed to be uh, destroyed in battle and put them aside for himself. This seems to have happened more than once. That he gets punished. He, he gets killed. But it doesn't stop there. His wife, his children, his livestock, they all get killed. In, they didn't do anything, but uh, but they're related to Achan, and that seems to say uh, he must somehow have uh, um, been identified with his larger family, were they with him? Uh, or to take maybe a more fun, uh, common example, at a certain point in Genesis, uh, two of Jacob's sons, uh, Simeon and Levi, avenge their sisters uh, having been raped by going into the uh, town of Shechem and killing all the uh, adult males. <laughs> and, you know, the, well, what did they do? Convict the rapist and, and kill him by all means, maybe even his father, but to kill the entire town uh, seems really over the top to us. Uh, but that's because, you know, we don't, have much left of this collective identity that was very uncommon back then. Well, and one of the more practical things that I think was really insightful in looking through your book is some some of the practical realities of this shift as we start to think of ourselves more individually, and we see this in the Bible, there's also this shift in how our how we think of our bodies and our minds as either being you know, open or permeable to outside influences when you have this collective idea versus when you're a 
kind of solid individual that you don't have a lot of these permeability uh, aspects of your mind and other can you speak to that idea of how the shift to toward individuals individual beings with clear physical boundaries played out in kind of the spiritual realm and our minds and how supernatural beings can interact with us well i i think i can mention a specific text and one that also demonstrates the fact that this great shift didn't park on a dime, you know, it didn't uh, uh, just change direction. Uh, immediately, it came bit by bit. And uh, there's a book that was written towards the end of the biblical period, but it, it never made it into uh, our canon of texts. It's called the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, um, a testament in the sense of the last will and testament of uh, Jacob's 12 sons. It's, I mean, a fake. We know that that this wasn't really written by Jacob's sons, but it was by somebody who wanted to use the um, uh, 12 sons of Jacob as examples of proper or improper behavior. And one thing that really obsessed the author was to know what really brings human beings to sin? Does, is it, does it come from somewhere inside me? Or uh, does it come from some marauding spirits flying around uh, that you can't see, but that uh, they see you and they can enter your mind and, and make you do things that you really would rather not do? Well, <laughs> this, this book is, is actually pretty late. It, it goes back to maybe the late second or early first century before the common era but uh, in, um, uh, in in this book there are two different explanations one of them is there's something inside me that makes me go wrong but it's really you know it must be my fault um, and uh, we can identify even the author of one of them since he's also part of a uh, uh, some uh, Christian Bibles, uh, Ben Sira or Sirach, as he's sometimes known, um, uh, lived right around the beginning of the second century before the Common Era, maybe 170 or 180 uh, BCE. A- and uh, he quotes uh, the opinion of um, earlier people who said, you know, if we sin, it's because we somehow cause ourselves to sin. We have an inclination that we're born with uh, to to do evil. We may not like to admit it, but, you know, I really wanted that, so I just took it. And uh, don't tell me anybody else made me take it. I did it on my own. But in that same uh, book, the same Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, some of his other characters are saying the opposite, that uh, there are these... um, external spirits that invade our minds from uh, from the outside. In a sense, uh, um, both of these explanations are uh, still around. Uh, I would say they're, if I had to guess, I would say the idea, uh, the first version, that sin, sinfulness comes from within me, is uh, nowadays, and at least most of the uh, Western world, basically accepted, although, you know, there are still people who quite seriously think that the devil is a an external force who somehow causes us, tempts us into, into sinning. But most people, I guess, give the rap to ourselves. Uh, one way or the other, 
And that's what you find uh, way back in the second century. The author of the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs was someone who fervently believed in alien spirits. I think if you really put the question to me, he would say, of course, they exist. But in the language that he uses and some of his comparisons, it seems he's really not sure. Sometimes one son will say one thing in his testament and and, uh, another will say something quite different. So are we at a period of like transition here historically? Is this, you know, this you is mean during the, us, uh, us we, uh, you know, nowadays or? No, us humans. Yeah. Uh, uh, looking at the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, are we at a point there historically in this Hellenistic period, perhaps, of a, like we're seeing the shift happen? Is that what's happening here? I think that's a a very good way to put it. I think maybe your answer suggested that it had to do with um, Hellenization, with uh, the triumph of Greek uh, military and culture over uh, a number of its neighbors, including um, uh, the people of Israel. So if um, if that's so, maybe we are indeed watching things change. But it's a bit of a problem because sometimes uh, things seem to change and then they really don't. I, I, I gave the example of, of punishment, of vicarious punishment, uh, you know, punishing people who aren't um, directly guilty of the sin. And if that was a changing point, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of the biblical period, we'd be tough, to, you know, it'd be hard to explain uh, the uh, book of Esther in which uh, Without any apology, uh, Esther, uh, you know, asks when the king uh, asks her if she has anything, anything else she wants uh, him to do. She, yeah, well, I'd like you to kill about seventy-five thousand other people, just because <laughs> there isn't any uh, actual uh, uh, reason you know, given. Uh, so these things do, you know, shift, uh, go back and forth. But uh, but I think we're definitely in a different place when it comes to transgenerational and vicarious punishment nowadays. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. 
Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast-growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, it's hard to, to uh, and we should not give into the temptation to find sort of a clear evolutionary development or some such thing in the biblical stories themselves because it's sort of as fits and starts and some things maybe catch on and then people are idiosyncratic even in the Bible. You know, they have ways of thinking about things that um, uh, not, everyone, not everyone agrees with even in the same period, I guess. Okay, before we go too far afield with this, can we just back up and help us understand what maybe the prophetic voice or the prophetic literature how that contributes to this discussion of how people perceived of the reality of God. Well, I, I've always thought that it, it, it's uh, instructive to look at uh, other cultures because there are some things that uh, cross over pretty easily. Ancient Greek literature, specifically Homer, the poet begins his, um, his poem by uh, what's now called rather sanitary language, the invocation of the muse. But um, Homer starts off not by invoking the muse, but he's just asking for help. I want to tell this story, but I really can't tell it on my own. I just don't have the tools or the ability. Uh, you have to inspire me. And so he calls on the appropriate muse, and that's how he starts off. Sometimes I admit these things uh, come to be uh, a cliché, uh, maybe even in those days, or a little bit later, a lot later, in Latin, you have, you know, Virgil invoking the muse. Uh, but but I, I think even back then, uh, you know, you needed help to be a poet. I think if you actually talk to some real poets nowadays, they might say the same thing. Uh, I remember a, a conversation once, uh, once with a now departed Israeli poet, uh, Yudami Chai, and he said, he said, well, you know, I don't really know about actually um, being inspired, but what happens to me, he said, is I, I have to be given the first line of the poem, and after that I can write it on my own. And uh, I, think, um, I think poetic inspiration is something rather akin to prophetic inspiration. In fact, it, it's sort of interesting to think about how Biblical um, poets, uh, biblical prophets, seem to write in what we would call verse. You know, they they have their measured sentences that um, uh, uh, you know give you that uh, sense that that uh, the whole thing is being 
uh, spoken in verse. Uh, the lines are pretty much the same length, so they don't quite match anybody's formula. And, um, and uh, they also invoke God and ask for his help uh, to say this or that. Um, so in a sense, biblical prophets uh, are uh, rather like poets, not altogether the same, but uh, there is a, a definite similarity. Okay, so I want to go back to talking about we we have this great shift of of how people conceive of themselves in from permeable you know permeable collective uh, senses of self to more boundaried were individuals, but we hinted at this a minute ago in, in terms of influence maybe of Hellenism, but wh- when did this happen and, and what caused it? You, you mean f- from us to have that collective sense to have... Um, more- yeah, this, yeah, this great shift. Yeah. Well, I actually uh, like the word shift as opposed to change because shift s- seems a little bit vaguer and, and what I was trying to suggest is uh, that it moves one step forward and maybe half a step back. So it's, it's hard to, you know, put a particular uh, label on it, and especially hard because we're talking about the different aspects of this uh, shift. I mean, the, the obvious thing that changed, or perhaps the most obvious, is how people began to conceive of God differently. It, you know, reading back in the book of, of Genesis or Exodus, it, it uh, seems sometimes that um, uh, God is, you know, basically human-sized. Uh, now that I think about it, um, Moses descends on Mount Sinai, according to the account in, in Exodus, uh, and, and next to, um, I'm sorry, God, uh, next to Moses. And and yet saved Sham. He stood right next to him. That's a rather human-sized God, and... and uh, it's only much later in the time of, uh, well, say, uh, uh, the latter part of the book of, uh, of Isaiah that he has a, a, a remarkably different sense where God is just huge. And and he says, Hashemayim uh, Kisi, the heavens are my uh, uh, throne and the earth is a little uh, a footstool, an ottoman that I put my feet up on. That's a huge God. It's not, however, an omnipresent God. You really don't find that there. Uh, that only comes after a, a, a later stage of the uh, of the of this great shift, which is really, for the most part, after the Bible, post biblical. Um, then suddenly, God is uh, uh, what I call the three omnis: uh, omnipresent, and also uh, omniscient, and also all-powerful. Yeah. Uh, but um, getting back to these, uh, the, the first, God isn't uh, omniscient uh, in much of the Bible. Um, to take, I don't know, uh, it, this may be an extreme example, but, you know, there's the story of Cain and Abel, and God somehow um, doesn't know where uh, uh, Abel uh, has gone after Cain has murdered him and buried him in the ground. So he asks Cain, where, where is Abel? 
this very much troubled later later biblical interpreters because if uh, you know God is asking, it, it would seem he doesn't know, and then he apparently approaches uh, to the place where uh, Abel has been buried. And uh, and now he's close enough to hear the sound of uh, the voice of Abel coming up from the ground, and uh, and then he turns to Cain and says, "I see, I see what you've done, but um, that means uh, I didn't see before." Well, later on, uh, towards the end of the biblical period, this was just uh, intolerable. Uh, God was huge, but God was also uh, uh, omniscient. So we had to find a way to explain why um, an omniscient God would say, uh, where is your brother Abel? And it becomes among ancient biblical interpreters, the story of of God who knew perfectly well, but wanted to trip uh, Cain up in his own words. So he says, you know, Cain says, uh, I don't know, Um, am I my brother's keeper? And uh, God said, well, that's exactly (laughs) what I wanted you to say. Now you have to understand the depth of your depravity in killing uh, your own brother. So that's a step beyond the huge deity where the heavens are God's, heavens or the throne of God, his footstool or or some such thing, right? This is a step beyond that. Those two, because if God is indeed so huge, then uh, he uh, presumably is able to simultaneously keep track of everything humans are doing everywhere. Well, let me let me ask a question that I think is going to come up in some people's minds about this, and they may be quick to point out, listen, Jim, at the very beginning of the Bible, you have this huge deity in Genesis chapter 1 who's sort of a cosmic button pusher and makes everything. I mean, I think there's a historical critical explanation for that, but why don't you give yours, if <laughs> whatever that may be, because it sort of begins with a huge God, and then we get to the God of the Adam and Eve story, and of Cain and Abel, where God's basically figuring things out. You know, he's, plan A doesn't work, you know, let's make animals to give Adam some companionship. Well, that's a bust. I, I know what I'll do. I'll put him to sleep. I'll take his side. I'll make a woman. And Adam wakes up and he goes, finally, you know, you got it right now. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the flood is like, a, like this isn't working at all. I have to start over. You have that kind of a, um, uh, like you said, the human voice that people hear. You have a very human-like kind of God, but... I don't know if Genesis 1 quite fits that portrayal. Right. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to push the point, but plenty of, of modern scholars say we can't use this material to um, uh, understand chronology. The order in which things are presented is not necessarily the order in which things evolved. So, so just to be really clear, what we're saying is, you know, in, in biblical uh, critical scholarship, the reason why that that portion we begin our Bibles with was probably written later and then added to the front uh, of our Bible to start it in the way that the, the final editors and redactors wanted it to start. But you do see that distinction in this distant big God at the beginning in those two creation stories there in the, the second chapter, when it seems like we're starting over, we're getting maybe an, an older 
portrayal of God as one who's more human-like and smaller. And so, we have to make sure we take into account the the editing of the text and not try to read it chronological. And when we do that, based on what critical scholars have concluded, it actually kind of fits your thesis here of this evolving um, depiction of, of who God is and how you know big God is and how human-like God is. Is that a fair way of summarizing that? I won't object to your uh, formulation, but what I guess I, I'd say is uh, when I read that, chapter one of Genesis, it seems to me more and more that it's not really about the creation of the world so much as it's about the Sabbath, that it's, a you know, the, the, all the elements that make up uh, uh, our reality uh, are divided into six units, presumably reflecting the order in which they were created, but uh, all the better to say at the end, God rested on the seventh day and so should you. Okay, so let's go back though to this idea of the, the um because I think that'll be new for people to say, yeah, go back in your Bible, we don't see really an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God that is comes later and is, is post-biblical. And I, I really appreciate what you said about this uh, Isaiah uh, passage, because it seems to be, as Pete was saying, it seems to be a transition moment where we have a very human-like God, and then we get this big, you know, outsized sort of um, God, and then that God gets even more powerful and, and big in the post-biblical world. Is that kind of the evolution as you see it? Well, yes, but I think I would also say, and I guess philosophers are not unfamiliar with this problem, that a God who is everywhere is also, in some sense, nowhere. Um, you know, you can't enter into his presence because he's already been there. So, I think people have, have wrestled with the implications of this uh, uh, omnipresent God. One thing you do find, again, in post-biblical text, but, but pretty close to uh, the end of biblical times, is that there are various angels whose job it is to uh, patrol around all of humanity and uh, I mean the, the whole world, and then report back to this uh, omnipresent God, and that way um, you can sort of balance uh, the implications of his omnipresence with a reality that really uh, seems to undercut it. Um, so that would be one of my turning points, anyway. So, so uh, a, re- a reality we experience, which we don't really experience this omnipresent God. There's sort of a gap between what we think God is like and the fact that we don't experience God that way. We might believe it, but we don't really feel it. And that's a very different kind of thing than God is sort of up there and out there someplace and makes cameo appearances who knows when. That's even That's a little bit easier to stomach, so to speak, than than a God who's all-knowing and, well, it gets us to the problem of evil, which we're not going to get into here, but God's, you know, knows everything and is all-powerful, and, and, but we don't experience that way, which I think could bring us, you know, even if we touch on it just briefly, on just the nature of prayer and how that might have changed with respect to how people were perceiving God. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think prayer is um, uh, one of the uh, 
areas that most clearly reflects this shift. Back in the olden days, the, the pre-shift text that we have, prayer is you know pretty much a, a cry for help, or if help has come, uh, then uh, the offering of thanks. But uh, you know, as time went on and uh, and people became individuals, it's striking that at, at the same time God became more distant. You know, people could uh, call on God for help, but really, for the first time um, in the development of uh, Israelite religion, you have uh, uh, people who aren't praying to ask for anything in particular. They are, as, as the common idiom says now, in search of God. He's more remote and sometimes just somehow establishing contact with this remote God is all a person could ask for or want. So we develop prayers, uh, again, just after the close of the biblical period where people get up in the morning and 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 pray they don't have requests for anything they just want to thank god for bringing up the sun and starting a new day for us and sometimes uh, prayers on the other end of things too when um we're about to uh, go to sleep and people will will pray to, to have a peaceful sleep and and be able to thank God uh, the next morning or need to thank mm-hmm. God now as the day ends. So this is a, a quite a, a different reality. Prayers are often associated, not exclusively, but uh, they're associated with worship in a temple. This is a place where a God, because I'm not speaking just about Israel now, but you know everyone from the ancient Near East and beyond, uh, they have a um, they have a temple because the god is supposed to inhabit that. And if if you wanted to, and and you could afford to, uh, you, you could arrange to request things of this god. You can always cry out and hope for help. But uh, but actually, in some Babylonian texts, it's clear that you could actually send what uh, scholars call letter prayers to. Um, deposit in the temple of the god and presumably over breakfast or something he would scan whatever the request of uh, that you've submitted and and maybe uh, you might grant it uh, in fact um, at least uh, one uh, scholar has pointed to um, a kind of hierarchy of of uh, prayer interventions where uh, if you really wanted to uh, make sure that the deity uh, got the message you could submit along with your uh, letter a uh, some sort of favor, you know, a, a knife or uh, you know other tool that might be useful, in hope in the hope that the, the deity would find this uh, useful and keep your request in mind. And then I think this is the most surprising, the, the highest level of, of gift that you could uh, give, which. Um, only the king or some very high official could could manage would be a little statue of yourself kneeling in front of the god who would be much bigger in his temple uh, as a sign of your eternal devotion and you'd be there at least in in statuary uh forever and ever Hmm. yeah i I mean uh, jumping ahead to again thinking of 
listeners and maybe even ourselves a little bit. Uh, I, I don't mean to be reductionistic, but there's something about the Bible that is largely pre-shift or maybe the beginnings of some soundings. I'm including the Christian Bible here too, because I don't think it's much different there. Um, it's more the creeds where things get really omni. <laughs> you know, the omnis are shouting at us in you know in the fourth century and, and maybe a little before that. But you know, we're living in a post-shift world, and we have a pre-shift Bible, and that can be a little bit difficult for people to accept, especially. And I think I may be largely speaking of Protestants here, but especially if they have a religious tradition that only takes as sort of a guiding principle the things that are on the page itself and not the traditions that come out of it. So, that's just an observation which leads me to another question. So, like, what do you think? <laughs> you know, what do you believe about all this? I mean, about God and how how do you process the information that you have in this wonderful book and in your thinking with your own view of how to even approach the question of what God is like. Is that too vague? No, I think I'm, I'm with you. I, okay. I, I guess what I'd say is that the human being never quite disappears from our thinking about God. You know, People say, well, you know, uh, if uh, an elephant could think about God, uh, he would conceive of a God with four legs and a tail and, uh, and so forth. But that's much more than saying we have an anthropomorphic God. Uh, God acts and it looks like a, a human being could because we're the human beings doing the thinking. That's all true, but it's, it's not going far enough. Um, there really is... Um, uh, it, it, no way that we can take the human out of our conceiving of God. And that doesn't bother me. I think really that's, um, you know, altogether the way it should be. And obviously it has uh, implications for not only the way we think about God, but the way we think about our fellow human being and how uh, those two, as I think Jared was suggesting earlier, might uh, reflect Well, maybe just, I'm going to ask one more practical question for people who maybe this has raised a lot of questions for them, similar to what, what Pete said. And so, it may be similar to what you, what you just said, but if you had any other thoughts for practically how, how can people in a post-shift world approach the Bible and, you know, what, what do we do with it? That's one of the foundational questions we ask on this show all the time. You know, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? How do we engage in a in a text, knowing that there are these things within it, you know, what, what have you found as, as helpful ways for people to continue to engage in the Bible in a, a way that is, uh, engages them where they are, which is kind of in this post-shift way of thinking? Well, I, I think that the thing that I, I suggested before, uh, uh, just before uh, your question, uh, you know, somehow anticipates my, my, my answer. I think the way that it, it becomes a, a, a kind of sectarian question. Uh, so I can say, uh, Jews uh, have have this notion uh, that um, their day is organized into uh, mitzvot, into acts of things that God has ordered. You get up uh, in the morning, and uh, you know you put on your shoes in a certain way, and you utter these blessings that are really directed to God thanking 
God for, you know, bringing us back to consciousness again and so forth. And uh, religious Jews do this. Uh, and then you go off and you go to the synagogue and uh, as a community, you pray together for 45 minutes or so. And then you go home and you have um, your breakfast, which, of course, won't involve mixing meat and milk or any of these forbidden animals like a ham sandwich and so on and so forth. So and these are all acts of um, fealty, of, of uh, obedience to God and a way of coming close to God. I, I don't mean to say that in a way that excludes other religions, but it's done a, a bit differently. So in all these ways, I think, I mean, uh, the, the whole matter is predicated on, on what you want. And I think that most human beings, although it's a, maybe a little frightening, they do want to somehow know how to come close to God. And, and uh, that can express itself in uh, what we would say is a social program. And prayer doesn't need to be... Uh, you know, the same thing that you pray day after day, but a rather heartfelt, uh, uh, different each day sort of prayer. So, you know, religions di differ on those things. But I think uh, they, I think under, underlying them has to always be uh, this desire to, uh, to come close to God. Yeah, and I appreciate that because it does fit with some of the lines of thinking that we've had on the podcast where we what we see in the Bible is a, a group of people wrestling with the divine, which is in a lot of ways beyond our comprehension. And it's, it's challenging to sort of fit it into our categories of thinking and ways of being. And that shifts over time. So, I appreciate you saying the sectarian way because our tradition and our own experiences inform the language we use when we talk about God, the, the practices we have uh, when we're talking uh, to God or in devotion to God. And that's an important part that we, you know, in my tradition, we would want to try to strip all of that way and get to just the facts. Um, but when we're talking about God, that is a challenging thing to do. And so, it's important that we cultivate these traditions and practices in various ways as we try to, to talk about God. And the Bible models that for us. Well, that's all true. But I, I, I would say, I, I, you, you know, this is my own particular obsession. It isn't always or even so much uh, what the Bible itself says, but what the people who first um, interpreted and put a certain spin on these texts uh, said. Uh, yeah. That's certainly uh, obviously true in the Jewish and Roman Catholic traditions, a little less obvious uh, for Protestants, but still the, the um, unnamed and then later well-known religious thinkers uh, of any of these traditions um, enacted a way of dealing with the biblical text that made it into a, an ever more perfect scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's good to begin with, but uh, but it gets better. I, I, I like to think <laughs> of the translation I once saw uh, of the works of Shakespeare into Yiddish. And uh, and on the front page, it said that, you know, the, in, in Yiddish, it said, the, these are the works of uh, William Shakespeare, Faltaged and Falbesset, uh, which means in Yiddish, 
um, uh, put into Yiddish and improve. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the way I like to think about ancient interpretations of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, it's it, we don't mean this as sort of a cheap commercial, but it really is interesting how this episode and our previous episode, they do, they mesh together. They're not unrelated. So, everyone go listen to whatever episode number that is. Google it. You'll find it fine on your own. So, uh, one one last thing. You end your book with, I think, just a beautiful illustration from Flannery O'Connor. Could you just utter that for the benefit of our listeners? Because I think it's really beautiful. She was, as you know, I suppose uh, uh, you may know, she she was um, quite a religious thinker, and uh, and she was a beautiful uh, novelist. She had, uh, you know, suffered greatly in her short life. She died, I think, at something like the age of thirty-nine. Uh, but uh, before that, when she was um, uh, just, uh, I think, uh, 19 or 20 years old, she uh, kept a prayer diary, and I was struck by it. Uh, here's what she says right at the beginning. Uh, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are, and by the way, <laughs> she doesn't know the difference between thee and you, but uh, she switches from the, from the by then, mostly <laughs> religious old English uh, form of expression to our own. So I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps, uh, keeps me from seeing all the moon. The crescent is very beautiful and perhaps that is all one like I am, should or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon that I will judge myself by the shadow that it's nothing. And what, you know, what I think is so well said about it is uh, uh, it says something about our own sense of self. We've become so big that uh, our shadow is um, overcoming the beauty of the moon. So we've got to somehow slim down to being nothing more than ourselves, and then uh, we can begin to look out at what is not us. That's a wonderful, I think, way to, to wrap up this episode, and it gives us something to think about. I, I appreciate that we're ending with something so poetic in, in many ways. Um, but what do you have any other projects that you're working on or other things that we might be able to point people to to learn more about uh not just this great shift, but also just the other works that you have on, on the Bible. Is there anything else that you can point people to? Yeah, another 600-page book you're working on at this point with 200 pages of footnotes? No, okay. Uh, I'm getting to be a pretty old guy, and I said at the beginning of this book, uh, The Great Shift, I said this is my last book, and so far I've been, you know, doing, <laughs> doing pretty Famous good. last words, famous last words. <laughs> I do have, I, I mean, for years, uh, I, I, you know, I, I've been carrying around this contract to do a... Uh, um, uh, commentary on the testaments of the 12 patriarchs, um, which is why I quote them at every occasion. But I also used to say, I mean, I said this for 20 or 30 years, that commentaries are for people who have run out of ideas. And uh, it, it, it bothers me that now I'm concentrating on the testaments full time. 
uh, that's, I think, only uh, the only thing I really have on the horizon. Okay, well, that's a nice horizon. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Jim, for being with us again. And uh, it was great. And uh, we had a wonderful time just talking about God with you. Can't get any better than that. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure, too. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We also want to give a shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to John R. Hawkins, Sean Bloom, Joel Beebe, Tracy Roberts, Jeff Paulus, Aaron Brown, Dan Dietz, Willard Vaughn, Chad Gilstrap, and Hannah Paxson. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer, Megan Kamick, audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt, creative director, Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard, Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate, and web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.